Welcome to Passion Church. For more information about Passion Church, please visit us online at www.passionchurch.tv. Now let's join the service already in progress. In the course of that, I contacted my dad and asked him to preach today uh, and just asked him and then kind of went my own way and I said, well, I'm going to do a standalone sermon called Tis the Season and I just happened to call him uh, a week and a half ago and said, what are you going to preach about? So I kind of know I, I want to do this Tis the Season thing and he said, well, I'm, I'm planning on preaching about seasons. And I went, hmm, okay, God, if you must be saying something, because we hadn't talked. And so we just decided to kind of tag team. And so my dad is going to come and bring the word this morning. I will tell you this, he's doing two separate sermons this morning, two different messages, one this morning and one for the late service. So if you want to stay for a double dose, you're welcome to do so. But would you please welcome my dad as he brings the word this morning. Now, the reason for doing two is I'm not a pastor by nature. I'm an evangelist, and it's real difficult for me to preach the same sermon twice. So, uh, tis the season. Well, that word season, as according to Scripture, scriptural definition, simply means a period of time. It can be indeterminate, indefinite. It can be measured. But during that period of time, however short or however long, that period of time is marked by a distinctive characteristic. It is defined and marked by something that's going on during that moment of time. And so, tis the season now, right now. This is the season from Black Friday to B.C. Clark's anniversary sale to after Christmas blowouts. This season is characterized by one thing, shopping. So yesterday's Tulsa World had in big headlines, deals lure, lure shoppers. Everywhere you turn, this season is characterized by shopping. In fact, I received an email from an individual. He said, pardon me for not responding earlier to your email, but I had the privilege, quote unquote, of shopping with my wife. And I think by this time, all of us feel about the same way. Don't you just get sick of shopping of all the, the hustle and the bustle. It's the story I told in our pod meeting the other day about a lady that was caught up in this season of shopping. She had three small children and they'd been in the mall and the crush of the crowd and buying all the right presents and the kids were fretful and, and, and uneasy and crying and she was trying to control them and carry all the packages and finally they, they're just about through and she rushes them into the elevator and the elevator is crowded with people and they all have packages and everybody is upset. You, you know, have you ever gone to the mall this, this season and looked on people's faces? It's like, why in the world are we here, you know? And so in the midst of all that, she thrust all the kids in the elevator and in frustration and desperation, she says, whoever thought this Christmas thing up ought to be taken out and shot. And there was silence, almost agreement, when all of a sudden a voice in the back said, don't worry, we've already crucified him. You see, this season is marked above all things by shopping. And I know you guys especially are tired of going to the mall and shopping. And so I found the top ten list of things for husbands to do to occupy themselves while their wives are busy shopping. Would you like to hear that? Number ten. When you go into the mall, set all the alarm clocks in the housewares department to go off at five-minute intervals. 
Number nine, make a trail of tomato juice on the floor leading to the restrooms. Number eight, walk up to an employee and tell him in an official tone, code three in housewares, and stand back and watch what happens. Number seven, go to the service desk and ask to put a bag of M&Ms on layaway. Number six, when clerks ask if they can help you, begin to cry and ask, why can't you people just leave me alone? <laughs> Number five, look right into the security camera, use it as a mirror and pick your nose. Number four, while handling guns in the hunting department, ask the clerk if he knows where the antidepressants are. Number three, hide in a clothing rack and when people browse through it, yell, pick me, pick me, pick me. Number two, when an announcement comes over the loudspeaker, assume the fetal position and scream, no, no, it's those voices again. And then the one I like best, guys, this is the number one thing you can do while your wife shopping. Go into a fitting room, shut the door, wait a while, and then yell very loudly, there's no toilet paper in here. <laughs> so, tis the season. Well, that's what I want to talk to you about. Seasons. A period of time, indefinite, indeterminate, can last a second, it can last thousands of years, but it is marked by a distinct quality or a distinct feature. We talk about seasons all the time. Seasons of joy, seasons of sorrow, seasons of trouble, tribulation, sickness, growth, prosperity, recession, peace, war, change, transition, restoration, refreshing. We talk about seasons. But the Bible is different and it tells us that the Holy Spirit is our manager. And the Holy Spirit takes these seasons of our life these times marked by certain characteristics and uses them to accomplish and to produce within us his purpose and his destiny. The Holy Spirit is at work in your life. And so he takes every season of your life, regardless of how it is characterized or defined, and he manages that season to manage you, to bring you to spiritual growth, to spiritual maturity, to bring you into his image. Or as James chapter 1 verses 2 to 4 says, like this, the Holy Spirit brings us to completion so that we will be perfect and entire and we will lack nothing. Well, what does that mean? In other words, he said, God is going to use these periods of time in your life to perfect you, to fit you for the task. In other words, so that you will grow up into his image and you'll be prepared to do his will. Not only so that you'll be perfect, but that you'll be entire. You will not be disqualified or disabled so that there will not be anything in your life that disqualifies you from accomplishing the purpose of God. And ultimately, he says, so that you would lack nothing, that you would not be deficient in anything, so that you can come to the praise of his glory and you can fulfill the purpose and the destiny of God in your life. So the Bible says God is aware that there are seasons and periods of time and they're defined by different characteristics, but the Holy Spirit is at work in every one of them. And the ultimate end is that he brings you into his image, that he fits you for the task, that he makes you complete and entire, lacking nothing, so that you will come to the praise of his glory and you will produce the ultimate will of God. 
And so some seasons are great, aren't they? Seasons of joy, seasons of peace, seasons of restoration, seasons of prosperity. We like those. And then there's some others that we just tolerate. Seasons of transition. We don't like that one very much, but we endure it. Seasons of change. We just, we just tolerate the change. And then there are some seasons that we can't stand, that we hate. And those seasons are the ones I want to talk to you about. For there is one in particular that I believe that we don't talk a lot about, but that God's Holy Spirit wants to use to bring you to completion. And it is a season of finding out. It is a season of bringing to light that which is hidden so that will lead to forgiveness. I want you to turn with me to Psalm chapter 32 and let's read David's psalm. It's interesting that it starts out a psalm of David, maskel. And that Hebrew term maskel is indefinable. It could be a musical term. Julie would relate to that. It's something that a musician would write to inform the choir and the musicians either how to sing it or how to play it. But there's another definition in the Hebrew. It means a teaching. So literally this says, this is a song of David that is to be used for teaching. He wrote it for the choir. So that as the choir sings this song as a special on Sunday morning, it would teach the congregation. Notice what he says. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer, Selah. I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and my iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin, Selah. For this shall every one that is godly pray unto thee in a time, in a season, when thou mayest be found. Literally it says, For this shall everyone that is godly pray unto you, so that in the season of finding out, in the season of uncovering, you will be found. Surely in the floods of great water they shall not come nigh unto thee. Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance, Selah. I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. Be ye not as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. Many sorrows shall be unto the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. Verse 10 says, mercy shall compass him about. It literally says, the Lord's unfailing love will surround him. And so what this psalm is about is a time of trouble. A time when God finds out something in your life. When God uncovers that which is hidden. When the Holy Spirit brings back that which you've done wrong. And in that time of trouble, it feels like literally that all hell has broken loose against you. Everything that you thought was hidden and covered is suddenly made known. 
And the, the, the David, the psalmist, expressed it like this. It is like a, a dam breaking on the river. And the flood of great waters comes against you to sweep you away. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like a time in your life when God was kind of mad at you? One man said God was out to kill him. He just kept missing. Let me read you a story. His name is Brian. He had more than his share of bad luck. When his apartment in Utah became flooded from a broken pipe in the apartment above his, the manager told him to go out and rent a water vacuum. That's when he discovered that his car had a flat tire. He changed the tire and went inside again to phone a friend for help. But the electrical shock he got from the phone so startled him that he inadvertently ripped the phone off the wall. Before he could leave his apartment a second time, a neighbor had to kick his door down because by now water damage had jammed it tight. While this was going on, someone stole his car. But it was almost out of gas, so he found it just a few blocks away. He then had to push it to a gas station where he filled up the tank. That evening, he attended a military ceremony at the university he was attending. He injured himself severely when he somehow sat on his bayonet, which had been tossed in the front seat of the car. Doctors were able to stick, stitch up his wounds, but no one was able to resuscitate four of his canaries who were crushed to death from the wet falling plaster in his apartment. After arriving home and slipping on the wet carpet where he badly injured his tailbone, he said, I begin to wonder if God wanted me dead, but he just kept missing. Have you ever felt that way? There are times when it seems like God brings to light situations that we thought were hidden and covered. And he does it for a purpose. Now we know that at the end of the age, all of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We all know that some men's sins go before them to the judgment and some men's sins follow after, but they all arrive at the same place. There's going to be a time when everything Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10 that shall be hidden will be revealed. There is that time that Paul says in Hebrews that everything is naked and open in the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Daniel says he reveals the deeds and the hidden things of our heart. He knows what lies in our darkness and light dwells with him. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word that they have spoken. The Bible talks about the books being open and we will be judged by the deeds that we've done in the flesh. We know that's going to happen. Psalm chapter 9, he said, You have set our iniquities before you and our secret sin is in the light of your presence. And 1 Corinthians chapter 4 says, He will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will expose the motives of men's heart. He will make manifest our hidden things. And what the Bible says is that every one of us experiences such a time when all of a sudden that which we thought was hidden is found out. That which we thought was covered is made known and brought to light. And the result is that trouble that comes upon us is like a flooded river. The dam breaks and the flood sweeps us away. David had experienced that. And he wrote about it in Psalm 32. And to understand Psalm 32, you have to understand the story in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12. Because you know that God had chosen David as a man after his own heart. 
That sweet psalmist of Israel, he taught him to be a warrior. He's going to rout the enemy and establish the kingdom of Israel. He's been brought into Jerusalem. The ark of God's glory has been restored. The presence of the Lord is there. The people are praising God. Everything is going wonderful. Remember? And then the Bible said, there came a time when the king should go to battle. And instead of David going to battle, he stayed in Jerusalem. Do you know what the princely anointing, the kingly anointing was for in the Old Testament? To rout the enemies of Israel. To deliver the people from the bondage of their oppressors. The prince, the king was anointed for one major purpose. To rout the enemy, to put him to flight, to establish the kingdom of God, to bring God's presence and purpose on the earth. David's anointing was to fight, to do battle. David said, he taught my hands to war. And now the Bible says, it was the time for the kings to go out to battle, but David stayed in Jerusalem. He was out of place. Every time you get out of position and place where God is destined for you to be to fulfill your purpose, you will undergo temptation and the attack of the enemy. It is important, as, as Pastor Steve told us last week, that you stay planted, that you stay in the place that God positioned you. David stayed in Jerusalem. And immediately the Bible said, while he was out of position, he saw the nakedness of Bathsheba. And instead of averting his eyes and keeping his commitment to God, he allowed lust to build into his heart. And the Bible said he sought information. Now, don't misunderstand that. David knew who Bathsheba was. She was the granddaughter of his most trusted advisor. She was the granddaughter of Ahithophel. He watched her grow up in his court and he already knew who she was and he knew something about her. She was married to Uriah the Hittite. And Uriah the Hittite was with Joab and the army of Israel in the battle where David was supposed to be. He stayed, he saw, he sought, he sinned. He brings her to him and commits adultery. And then she gets pregnant. And he knows it. And instead of confessing his sins, instead of falling on his face before God, this man that was described after the heart of God covers his sinfulness. Do you remember what he did? The moment he found out that Bathsheba was pregnant with child, he knew that all of Israel would know this sinfulness in his heart. And I have to hide it. I have to cover it. And so he brings Uriah the Hittite home from battle and brings him to his palace to a great feast. And when the feast is over, he says, Now, go down and spend time with your wife. And Uriah says, As long as the ark of God's glory is out on the battlefield, and my fellow comrades in arms are, are, are facing the enemy and, 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 and at the cost of their life, I will not go down to my house. The next night, David brings him back and gets him drunk, thinking that in his drunkenness he will go into Bathsheba and the sin will be covered. And Uriah refuses. Drunken as he is, he turns aside and does not go into his own house. And finally, in desperation, David contrives a plan to cover his sin. 
And he sends to Joab and says, when you get into the battle, I want you to bring Uriah the Hittite to the front, right up against the wall where the valiant men and the arrows come the worst. And then withdraw and leave him by himself. And Uriah is killed. And the moment the word that Uriah is dead comes to Jerusalem, then David takes Bathsheba and for nine long months he covers his sinfulness. Can you imagine? Nine months while she is pregnant before the time of, uh, of birth. Every day of that nine months he has covered the sinfulness of his own life. It's hidden. No one knows. Uriah is dead. And Bathsheba is David's. And then all of a sudden, God formulates a season a time of bringing to light and finding out. And Nathan comes to David, wonderful prophet of God, courageous man, walks into the throne room, looks at David and says, I want to give you a story, a parable. There was a rich man and a poor man in the same town. And the rich man had the abundance of prosperity and flocks and sheep everywhere. And the poor man had one little ewe lamb. And he loved that little lamb. And he raised it at his own side and he fed it and nourished it with his own substance. And, and it grew up to him like a child, like a daughter. And the rich man had guests coming. And in throwing a feast for them, the rich man, instead of taking out of the abundance of his flock, took that poor man's one little sheep and killed it and fed his guest. And the moment David heard that, he becomes incensed. Anger rises up in his heart. He rises up off his throne and gives a judgment and pronounces the judgment of God upon such a despicable act. And he says, that man will surely die and he will restore fourfold everything. He's taken away. And Nathan said, David, you are that man. Isn't it amazing how angry we get at the sins of others while not facing our own? Well, you're quiet this morning. Isn't it amazing how angry we get at the actions of others while justifying our own? Nathan said, David, you're it. And Nathan said, David, I want to tell you two things. God never withheld anything from you. He gave you Saul's house. He gave you Saul's family. He gave you riches and treasures and established your throne. And if that was too little, he would have given you more. All you had to do was ask. And yet you took what was not yours and you covered it. And that which you did in hiding and secret, God is going to punish openly. And the child that was conceived in lust will die. And immediately David's heart becomes convicted and he shouts out to the prophet and he says, I have sinned against God. And David knew what the law said. The law of God said that for adultery the punishment was immediate. That David and Bathsheba would be carried outside the gates of Jerusalem. The elders of the city would pronounce the law and the judgment of God upon them and they would be stoned until they died. David knew that. I have sinned against God. And immediately the prophet says, David, you're not going to die. 
God hath laid your sin upon another. And the child that was conceived out of lust will die, but you have not died because God has taken your sin and placed it upon someone else. And Nathan is a prophet. And he's not talking just about that natural boy that was conceived out of lust. But Nathan is leaping over the justice and the judgment and the penalty of sin, which is death, and the penalty of the law. And he's leaping all the way into the New Testament. And what he's prophesying is about is, David, there's going to come another boy, and this son will not be conceived by lust, but will be conceived by the Holy Spirit. And God has taken your iniquity and your sin and put him on that boy, and you're going to live. David's heart is so thrilled that he's been pardoned, that he writes two psalms. One you're very familiar with, Psalm chapter 51. Lord, wash me and I'll be clean. Purge me and I'll be whiter than snow. Take not thy spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of thy salvation. Lord, cast me not away from thy... That's the song of his repentance. But he wrote another psalm, 32. He wrote a song, and when he got through with it, he handed it to the choir director in church and said, next Sunday, I want you to sing this song as a special so that when people hear it, it will teach them. They'll learn from what happened to me. You talk about a man after God's own heart. You talk about being transparent. That would be like me standing up Sunday morning and saying, oh, by the way, I want to tell you this great sin I committed this week so that you'll learn we're not quite that transparent, are we? But David was. David said, what I want you to know is that everything that's hidden in your life will one day be found out. And when that happens, it's like a flooded river that breaks upon you and it tends to sweep you away from God. But what I want you to know is that the Holy Spirit is managing that time. And instead of that river flooding you and sweeping you away from God, it's going to sweep you back into His forgiveness. It's going to sweep you back into the arms of His unfailing love. And that's what He said. There's going to come a season and a time of finding out. But it's in that time that we learn. Quickly, you know what He said? I, I, I wish we took time to go through all this on but first of all he talks about the sin that was committed he starts out by saying blessed happy to be envied is that person whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered whose iniquity in whom there is no God he literally mentions four types of sin you know what transgression is it's to trespass it means you see the sign that says no trespassing and you reject that sign and you climb over the fence anyway. That's what sin is. It is the transgressing or the trespassing of the law. It is not only the rejection of the law, but it is the rejection of the law giver. And it always separates us from God. And then he talks about sin. And sin there means to miss the mark and to fall short of the purpose of God. Because every time you miss the mark, it doesn't just affect you, it affects everyone around you. And so to transgress means to omit what the law requires and to commit what it forbids. Sin in this term means to leave undone what God wanted you to do. 
And then iniquity means twisted and distorted. The way of the transgressor is hard. It comes from the word wicker, twisted and distorted. It means to be uh, malignant, morally distorted, bad, fraudulent, deceitful. And then he talks about guile. And guile is hypocrisy. It's claiming but not producing. And so David describes this sin like that. I've done what was forbidden. I left undone what was required. I perverted that which was right. And I projected an image that was false. I have sinned. And before you're too hard on him. Isn't there things in our life like that? Where we reject what God says. We leave undone what he requires. We pervert what is right. And then we go about with this covering and this hiding, projecting this false image of everything is okay. We have sinned. That's the sin he committed. But notice the silence of his conviction. He said, when I kept silent, you know what happened? My bones waxed old day and night he literally said there was this suffering physically Oh, on the outside I may have sat upon my throne and and felt like and pretended that everything was okay but inwardly my body my bones were whacked with pain I suffered physically you need to read Psalm 51 and hear him talk about his heart and his eyes and his lips and his voice and He literally said, everything in me was affected physically. And then he said, I was under the Savior's chastening. The hand of the Lord was heavy against me. You raised up adversaries against me. Every time trouble comes, we want to say the devil. Don't we? Every time something goes wrong, it's the devil. I mean, Jerusalem was surrounded by the armies of Babylon and everyone in Jerusalem was saying, the devil, the devil, the devil. You know what Jeremiah said? God, God, God. Because those that God loves, he chastens and he corrects. And when we hide, not only do we suffer physically, but the chastening of the Savior is upon us. His hand was against us. And then he said the worst thing was that my moisture became like the summer drought. You know what he's talking about? All my anointing was gone. It was that holy anointing oil that Samuel poured on his head that routed the lion, that killed the bear, that destroyed the giant, that brought the ark into Jerusalem, that caused him to write psalm after psalm after psalm. And he said, as long as I hid, as long as I covered that moisture, that anointing, drive up. And then we have the sob of his confession. He said, I've acknowledged my sin Against you. You know what he could have said? I sinned against Bathsheba. He did. I sinned against Uriah. He did. I sinned against the law of God. He did. I've sinned against the nation of Israel. I've sinned against my purpose and my calling. But sin is against God. Oh, it affects everything else. But when we sin, it is a direct affront to God. 
He said, I have sinned against God. And the Bible says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, David came to the place that he had to say the same thing about what he did that God said about it. Do you know that's what confession means? Confession means we say the same thing about it that God said about it. That we don't cover it. We don't do that. We say it's genetic. It, it, it's hereditary. My dad was an angry man and I inherited that and I just have a short fuse. You know, my mom was a frank person and she'd just speak her mind regardless of what she said and who it hurt. No, it's sin. Well, no, no, brother. It's environmental. It's the environment that I was raised in. It's like the little story. The boy said, you know what's wrong with me? Why I act like I act? What, what causes me to be so bad? said, it all happened because of my grandfather. said, he's to blame. said, he told me one day, said, son, let's go out and pick blackberries. And when I got out there, I said, Grandpa, why are the blackberries red? And he said, son, because they're green. And he said, I never have figured that out. And that's warped my personality ever since. <laughs> that's what we do. But not David. He says, I have sinned against God. And then immediately when he confesses, there's this song of cleansing. He is my hiding place. What I thought would sweep me away like a flooded river and move me away from God has brought me into the unfailing love of God. And the finding out has brought me to forgiveness. For he says, my sin has been forgiven. And it literally means it has been lifted off. It has been placed upon the head of the scapegoat. And instead of me carrying my sin, the scapegoat has taken my sin out into the wilderness of forgetfulness. God has carried off my sin. My sin is covered, which means now it is underneath the blood of a son that is yet to come. And when God views me, he doesn't see my iniquity, but he sees me through the lens of his son and his son suffering on the cross, and he doesn't see my sin anymore. And iniquity is not imputed unto me. He paid the debt that I couldn't. He took all of my iniquity and put it on himself. He that knew no sin became sin for me. He took my sins in his own body, nailed them to his own tree. He took my iniquity and my rebellion and my sinfulness and put it on his side of the ledger. And he took the righteousness of what he did on the cross and added it to my side of the ledger. And the result is this season of finding out hasn't swept me away from God. It has swept me into the forgiving arms of God. And so God breaks into the psalm and said, David, don't be like a horse, high-spirited horse that keeps surging ahead and sidestepping away. Don't be like a, a slow, stubborn mule that I have to drag with a bit and a bridle. From now on, I will guide you, and my eye will counsel and teach you. And David ends it with a song of conversion. And he said, now I want you people to know from this song that in the time and the season when God brings to light and finds out the hidden things in your life, they're not going to sweep you away from God. But they're going to bring you under the mercies of God. They're going to put you in the unfailing arms of God's love so that you will sing and rejoice and shout. And instead of a time of trouble, 
it's a time of restoration. It's a time of healing and a time of forgiveness. I close with that New Testament example of the prodigal son. There's none better. Luke chapter 15 demands his part of the father's inheritance, shows disrespect to his father. You know what the law said? If you despised or rejected or showed disrespect to your father, the elders of the city would take you outside the gates and stone you. That was a capital offense. And when he demanded his part of the inheritance before his father's death, he showed his father total disrespect. The father relinquished the part of the inheritance that belonged to that man and he went to the far country, spent it in riotous living. And now he's found out. Famine, no friends, no funds in the hog field. Would have taken what the hogs ate fed his own belly and all of a sudden the Bible said and he came to himself. I think he just saw his reflection in one of those mud holes that the hogs wallowed in and when he saw his condition he said in my father's house even the servants fare better than I do. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to rise and I'm going to go to my father and I'm going to say father I have sinned against heaven and before you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son make me a hired servant swept away by his own act all the coverings gone now oh he can send out the postcards and say having a wonderful time wish you were here but he's in the hog field of his own choice and he comes to himself but instead of sweeping him away from the father it brings him to the father and he arises and while he's a great way off, his father sees him coming. And his father rushes to him. Do you know why the father rushed to him? To keep the elders of the city from killing him. The law said he would die. The Bible said the father ran. For the father to run, he has to pull up the skirts of his robe. And, and though as archaic as it is today, when a Hebrew man exposed his ankle or his shin, he was considered by the people to be naked. And he pulls up his robe. He becomes a spectacle. He makes a spectacle of himself to divert the judgment of the law. To divert the attention of the elders. Because if he can get to the son before they can get to the son, he can show mercy. And he rushes and embraces him. And says, you were lost, but you're found. You were dead, but you're alive. Kill the calf, call the neighbors. Let us rejoice and make merry. My son's found again. So the time of finding out and bringing to light is not meant to sweep you away from God. But David says, it washed me into his mercy. It brought me into the unfailing love of the Father. And that's what I want to say to you from my heart. I don't know what God will do during this new year. It may very well be that it will be a time of finding out and bringing to light what you thought was hidden. But what I want you to let it do is not sweep you from the presence of God. But to hear the psalm David wrote, it swept me into his arms of unfailing love. The best example I can tell you is in the book of Hebrews. In chapter 8 and chapter 10, he says, their sins and their iniquities will I remember against them no more. They're gone.
they're covered. They're lifted off. They're carried away. And do you know how I know that's true? Because when you get to Hebrews chapter 11, he starts listing these people that we know everything about. Abraham and Moses and Jacob and Isaac and David and Solomon. And do you know in Hebrews chapter 11, he never mentions a fault. He just talks about their faith. Why? Their sins and their iniquities have I forgiven. And I'll not remember them against you again. So don't be swept away. Be swept into the arms of his unfailing love. Father, thank you right now for your presence. Thank you for the presence of the Holy Spirit. Because you are our manager. And you take every season of our life to bring us into your image and to make us to the praise of your glory and to restore your purpose and your destiny for our life. That we would be complete, mature, entire, not deficient in anything, not disqualified from doing your will. Lord, right now, this may be a time that seems like trouble. This may be a season where things are being uncovered and brought to light and it's like a flood in our life, overwhelming us, sweeping us away. Lord, sweep us into the unfailing arms of your love. Sweep us into the arms of your forgiveness. Forgive our sins. Cover our iniquities. Add your righteousness to our lives that we will be to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name. Would you just stand with me for a moment? Hallelujah. Seasons. Bring me joy, Lord. Make it a season of prosperity. Make it a season of growth. Make it a season of refreshing and revival and peace and what if it's a season of finding out, bringing the light, not swept away, swept to his unfailing love? There may be someone right now that it seems like literally all hell is broken against you and it's a time like a flooded river is trying to move you away from God. But I tell you what the Holy Spirit's up to. He's bringing you to forgiveness and restoration surrounding you with songs of deliverance bringing you to completion every head's bowed for a moment there may be someone and, and I, I won't embarrass you I just want to pray for you and others want to pray you just slip up your hand and say brother Bob that's where I'm at it's, it's like a season of a flood coming against me and sweeping away and finding out and bringing to light and I don't want to be moved away from God I want to be moved into his unfailing arms of love would you just slip up your hands and say, pray for me. Pray for me. Pray for me. I'm in that season. I'm in that season. I need forgiveness. I need restoration. Hallelujah. It's been a privilege to have you join us for this time of ministry. To find more Passion Church resources or to make a donation online, 
visit www.passionchurch.tv. Remember, you can't live without passion.